Well, aren't you thankful that though our sins are many, his mercy is more? We have a covenant-keeping, faithful, forgiving, almighty God. Amen? I think that's what I love about communion. It just reminds us how faithful and loving and forgiving our God is. Well, it is a, a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. I don't often get to fill the pulpit in Ken's absence, but it is a joy and uh, so grateful to open up the word of God with you this morning. Well, as many of you know, our family had the privilege of serving overseas as missionaries in the country of Albania for nine years. I left America thinking I was spiritually mature. I mean, after all, I was going there to train pastors and train biblical counselors and teach theology and systematic theology in a seminary. God used a trial to show me something that I had not clearly seen up until that point. October 2015, my wife Shelley started having pain, decreased vision in her right eye. We got an MRI, which confirmed that she had a tumor in her brain. I remember it like it was yesterday, sitting in the office and that Albanian doctor telling us, there is absolutely nothing we can do for here. here. You need to get back to America as quickly as possible. And I remember thinking, God, why? Why? How can this be? I mean, we're here serving you. We left everything to come here to serve you. It's really hard to serve you with a tumor in my wife's brain. During those first many months, there were times when I felt like God had abandoned us in the middle of a desert with no hope, especially when I opened up that MRI, uh, Albania, they still give you the actual film. And I remember walking out of the Albanian hospital and opening up that film as the light was going down over the mountains and seeing this giant white spot in the middle of my wife's head. It hit me. My wife could die from this tumor. Well, if we had time, each of us could come up to the front. You could step up and grab a mic. We could share the wilderness trials that we have been in. Some of you, it's a medical one. Some of you, you've had an incredibly difficult divorce. And you're still healing some of you, it's a rebellious teenager, and you know the scars that can bring and the pain. For some of you, you lost your job. Some of you, it's depression, anxiety, fear, seemingly without any hope. Some of you, it's financial struggles. You don't know how you're going to get out. But thankfully, when we ask God why, the Bible is not silent. Amen? Amen. The Bible tells us the purpose of God's testing. And so this morning, we are going to look briefly at the purpose of God's testing for Israel on their journey to the promised land. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is perhaps one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. As you're turning to Deuteronomy 8, I'm sure you all remember the story of Exodus, Exodus 1 to 15 how God miraculously rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. 
He brought them through intense difficulty, through the Red Sea, through a desert with no natural food or water, and then 40 more years of wandering and death in the desert after that first generation rejected God. Remember, they sent spies into the promised land, saw the people were afraid, said, God, we can't take them, and they disobeyed God. And in Numbers 14, 29, God said, well, if you're going to refuse to trust me and obey me, then all the adults over 20 are going to die off in this wilderness. And he sent them back into the desert for another 40 years. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 8, 40 plus years after leaving Egypt, wondering why God brought them through so many trials along the journey. I mean, think about this. If God could part the Red Sea, if he could make manna rain down from heaven and water spring forth from a rock, couldn't he have also removed the trials and the difficulties along the way? Answer, of course he could have, but he didn't. Here in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 6, through Moses, God tells this new next generation of Israelites that if they want to possess this promised land, then they must trust, fear, and obey God alone. And then he explains why God purposefully brought them through this 40-plus year trial in the desert. So let me read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Give us a little bit of context for verse 2 that we're going to be looking at. Starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 8. All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So here in verse two, he gives two of God's purposes of testing which we're going to examine together this morning so that we might better understand how to follow him and how to respond in faith, especially when you find yourself in the middle of the wilderness. So what's the first purpose of testing? We find this in the first part of verse two, to humble them, to humble them. He says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might... Humble you. Again, just to point out, they didn't wander into this trial by accident or chance. What does the text say? God led them. God used the trials to humble them by giving them a realistic awareness 
of their dependence upon God for all of their needs. Again, 40 years in a desert will do that, won't it? Think about that as you're driving by Walmart this morning. There's no Walmart in the wilderness to buy food or water or sandals. God provided water for their thirst, manna from heaven, pillars of cloud by day, pillars of fire by night to guide their steps. It was God who miraculously decreed that food fall from heaven and water pour from that rock. I think this is why in verse 3, Moses reminds them that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. They received no bread through their own efforts, solely through the sovereign decree of God. Therefore, it wasn't actually the bread that kept them alive, but rather the merciful decree from the mouth of the Lord. God humbled them by forcing them to look to him for help through each miraculous provision. In fact, let's see an example. Turn back to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Israel should have known this. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Again, this, this next generation that Moses is speaking to here in Deuteronomy 8 had witnessed their parents fail at this, at least the ones that were still alive at that time. And they saw their parents fail time and time and time again. So let me read, starting in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. Remember what has just happened. In the first 15 chapters of Exodus, God has just miraculously shown, I am Yahweh, there is no other God but me. Freeze them. I mean, the soldiers are still floating in the Dead Sea. And in the first part of chapter 15, they're praising God for his deliverance, and then immediately they wander into the wilderness, and what do they find? Out of the fire, into the frying pan. And that's exactly what happens. Let the testing begin. So they go from Egypt right into the desert, and they're thirsty. How do they respond to this test? They find no water, so what do they do? The next best thing, grumble at Moses. Grumble. And let us not forget, when you grumble against Moses, who are you really grumbling against? And who does Moses represent? He's representing God. That's why in the second test for water in Exodus 17, 2, Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That grumbling complaint was actually a grumbling complaint against God. What were they saying? God, you're not providing for us. So they got angry at his representative Moses. But notice, isn't it amazing? Even in the midst of their sin, God doesn't just merely provide them Conroe tap water. What does he provide? Water that is sweet. It's like Evian from the French Alps. This is probably the best water that Israel had ever tasted. It was sweet. 
miraculously sweet. There were many times Israel's thirst was quenched through God's miraculous provision, and yet they still complained. They argued. In fact, they were even on the verge of stoning Moses. We see that a little bit later in Exodus 17, 4. You would think that they would begin to see a pattern of God's faithfulness throughout the testing process. But time and time again, they tended to forget. Hence the clarion call to remember in Deuteronomy 8, 2. It says, you shall remember. And what were they supposed to remember? All the way which the Lord your God has led you. What does that mean? What are they supposed to remember? who God is, just how faithful he has been. And if he's been faithful in the past, guess what? He will be faithful today. He will be faithful when? Tomorrow. He's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. This is why verse one calls them to obey so that they might prosper in the land all the commandments I'm commanding you today, you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Trust God, obey God, and be blessed. Why? God swore it. A promise that he made to your forefathers, guess what? He will keep it. Is God a faithful covenant-keeping God or not? If he swore it, it's gonna happen. What a good reminder for us. God is always faithfully present even when we forget. See, Israel's life was characterized not by immediately turning to God in prayer for solutions to their problems, so what did they do? If you're not turning to God, where do you look? Your problem. And so their life was characterized by worry, anxiety, fear, and if that's going on in the heart, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to result in the mouth getting involved through complaint, through critique, critical spirit. So God humbled them. Isn't it interesting? That's often the way it is with our pride. It's true, isn't it? It's often the way that it is with our pride. Because we don't see it. We're not even aware we need to be humbled. But then when God puts us in that trial, what does he do? He begins to strip away everything that we tend to cling to, forcing us to turn to him. And because God loves us, he humbles us so that he can give us grace to the humble. Isn't that what James 4, 6 says? He's opposed to the proud, but what does he give to the humble? Grace. Same thing in 1 Peter 5. Deuteronomy 8, 5 makes it clear that he was disciplining them. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. I can't help but read that and think of Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You see the connection? The best thing for Israel was to humble them. Well, I thought I was humbly dependent upon the Lord. Till God used this trial in my life to show me, to reveal to me my own self-sufficient pride. See, it's important for us never to forget our strength to endure trials does not come through self-sufficiency. 
And why is it I forget that? And in the moment of trial, I start trying to fix it. Any other fix-it people out here? Yeah. The minute you get into trouble, what do you do? Try to fix it. It doesn't come through self-sufficiency. It comes through the strength of knowing and trusting our all-powerful living God. So we're there in Albania with so many uncertainties expensive, astronomically high plane tickets. You know, you know those last-minute plane tickets, international? We have no hospital to go to. I thought it was going to be easy to find a hospital. We had no idea what a 20-hour trip would do to Shelly, to the tumor, to the pain that she was in. I was tempted to worry. I was tempted to get angry at God. Why would he move us all the way to Albania only to take the life of my best friend? I was tempted to complain about how long it was taking to get her help. And I realized something. I was not in control. Anybody else in here really like to be in control? God stripped everything away to force me to pray and depend upon him. And what does Psalm 46.1 say? God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. See, I couldn't fix my wife's brain tumor, but I knew the one who could, amen? God brings us into the trial, and when we have learned what we need to learn, he brings us out the other side, all the more dependent upon him and more like Christ. Isn't that what James 1, 2 to 4 says? Consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And what is the, the perfect result of endurance? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Nothing. When does God ever let us down? Through the trial, he makes us all the more trusting in him, building our faith. And then it ends up making us like Christ. When the winds of trials blow against us, it is then that our spiritual roots grow deep and our trust in God is strengthened. You see, God never wastes pain, does he? C.S. Lewis said it this way. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone, his megaphone, to rouse a deaf world. It's true, isn't it? You see, trials and the pain that they often bring help us to see who we really are and who or what we are really trusting in. It's about a refuge, isn't it? When you find yourself in a difficult trial, who or what do you run to for hope or for comfort, for satisfaction, for the fix? Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. It's the other passage quoting Proverbs 3. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love this passage, 1 Peter 5. We see at the end of verse 5, there's our, a quote from Proverbs 3, 34. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's true. 
Therefore, as a result of that truth, what does Peter say? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Why should we humbly place ourselves under God's authority, giving all of our anxiety and our fear and our worry to him? Because he is mighty. He cares for us. And he will exalt us at the right time. What can this world do to me to separate me from the love of Christ? We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Answer, nothing. Because even if I get a report that's gonna kill me someday, guess what? I still get Christ. And when you find yourself in the pit or in the, the desert low, what will God do at the right time? He will exalt you and lift you up and you get Christ and you get the hope of heaven. Incredibly comforting to us. We don't have time to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to, 10, 7 to 10 is another incredibly encouraging passage. How many times did Paul pray for that thorn to be removed? Three times. Paul even says, I was given this thorn as a means to keep me from exalting myself. The grace of God is sufficient. His strength is perfected in weakness. When we are weak, the power of Christ is mightily displayed in us. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? God shows off his power in his provision, in his care. What's the lesson? Well, there's many. This is at least one. To learn from God's tests, we must be humble. This may seem incredibly obvious to us, but it's important for us to remember that proud people don't learn. Again, what can you teach someone that's proud? Some of you live with a proud person. You've, you know this. What's the answer? What can you tell that person? Nothing. Why? Because proud people already know everything. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Some of us can hear this message, go to lunch, find ourselves complaining about all kinds of things, can't we? Our ministry or lack of it, our finances or lack of it, maybe something going on medically, kids, spouse, whatever it is. It's as if we hadn't read these passages in Scripture, as if we hadn't even heard this message. And already we're complaining and grumbling. See, when you are being tested by the Lord, remember who he is. Humble yourself and ask God to reveal that if you've sinned or if you have sinned in your heart, ask him to show you that, that you may repent. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe it's a complaining heart. Humble yourself and then ask him to show you how to respond and to help you by his spirit through his word. So one of the purposes of testing is to humble us so that we might learn to turn to and depend upon God and his promises. Why? So that we don't respond sinfully with fear, with worry, with complaint or criticism. 
Well, there's a second purpose of God's testing back here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's at the end of verse 2. To expose the true nature of their faith. The second purpose of testing. To expose the true nature of their faith. Notice what Moses tells them. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Testing you to know what? What was in your heart. You see, God was exposing the true nature of their faith from their heart. Now, here's the question. Did God already know what was in their heart? Answer, yes, of course. 1 John 3, 20 reminds us God knows everything. Job 37, 16 tells us that God is perfect in knowledge. Unless we forget Hebrews 4, 13, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God. You know what that verse means? God doesn't only see what you and I do in secret when no one else is around. He knows why we do it. That's frightening, isn't it? He doesn't just see what we do, but he sees the motive, the desire, the want behind the action. So God purposefully brought the Israelites into the desert and afflicted them with these trials. Why? So that they would know what their attitude toward God was. And how was their heart exposed? Well, Moses tells us whether you would keep his commandments or not. Notice here there is a connection between our faith and our obedience. True faith results in humble obedience to God's commands. Why? Because I trust that when God commands me to do something, that he knows what's best for me, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it's illogical, or I think I have a better way. Or even when the timing stinks. You ever have a trial that comes out of nowhere and you're like, God, this couldn't be the worst time. Your timing is horrible. You ever said that to God? I think this is why Moses reiterates in verse six the necessity for them to exercise faith in God by obeying and fearing God alone. That's what it says. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. God uses difficult trials to put us under pressure to show us who we ultimately listen to. Let me show you another example of this, Numbers 20. Turn back to Numbers 20, if you would. Again, you would have thought that they would have remembered what happened back in Exodus 15 and Exodus 17 when they and their parents were thirsty and they complained, and yet still God provided so here's an example where this next generation fails. In fact, we believe that this chapter, Numbers 20, is probably happening sometime around the end of their 40 years of wandering. In fact, most uh, Bible scholars think this happened about 10 months before Deuteronomy 8, just to give you a, a sense of the timing of this. So this is happening sometime around the end of their 40 years in the desert. We have the setting in verses 1 to 6, Numbers 20. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. 
Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation. Does this sound familiar? I feel like I've heard this before. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen next. They assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. That's not looking good. Verse 3, thus the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Can you hear it? Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Well, we know who the Emmy goes to. And Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Verse 3, when they contend, it's the same idea as we saw in Exodus 15 and all the other passages has the idea of quarreling, fighting with their words. They are against Moses. Remember from Exodus 17, when you're against Moses, who else are you against? God. So, verse, end of verse six. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. In verse seven, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Are those instructions clear to you? You get what he's saying? Yeah. Notice how Moses responds in verse nine. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. So far, so good, right? And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Uh-oh. It's not a good sign. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? He said, dripping with sarcasm. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Did Moses listen to God and obey him? No. Isn't it interesting? In Exodus 17, we have the other example 40 years before with Moses, God, angry people, a rock, and no water. And there, what did God tell Moses to do? Strike the rock and water will come out. Here, what does God say? Speak to the rock and water will come out. And what, what does Moses do? Whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> Here he strikes it when he should have spoken to it. Why? Why does he do this? Well, I think we, we pick up some hints. He calls them rebels in verse 10. Probably a sign of anger and personal offense. Again, it's possible that 40 years of complaining and criticism will do that in a man's heart. Any of you have complaining kids or grandchildren? Anybody? If they're sitting next to you, do not raise your hand. That would be weird. 40 years of this. It's possible that's what was going on here, resulting in, in what I think was probably some kind of sarcasm. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? No, 
you complainers, I hope you die. God gives us some insight into the heart of Moses in verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Wow. You know what God is saying there? Moses didn't trust God. He didn't believe him. possible he didn't think these whining, complaining Israelites after almost 40 years didn't truly deserve water. But again, isn't it interesting from verse 11, in spite of the people's sin and Moses' sin, how does God provide? Abundantly. Abundantly. You see, Moses didn't treat God as holy by taking matters into his own hands. This is self-reliance, not God-reliance. Do you see that? Does he know better than God? Apparently he thought so. And what's the consequence? Well, just as that first generation in Numbers 14, 40 years ago, would not enter the promised land because they didn't trust in God, they didn't obey God, in spite of all that God had done for them, guess what? Neither will Moses. See, God puts us in the wilderness to test us, to expose the true nature of our faith. Will we truly humble ourselves? Will we depend upon the Lord and his faithful promises? Will we obey? Even if we don't like it, even if we don't agree with God? Or will we, in our own self-sufficient pride, attempt to fix problems our way, using our own resources, all the while responding to trials focused primarily on our own problems. This is where you find yourself saying, God, you clearly don't understand how unloving my husband is because if you did, then you would understand why I can't stand to be in his presence and why when I'm with my girlfriends, I talk so bad about him. He is so unloving. Or you say, God, you don't, you don't know how much I need this money. If I don't have this money, I'm going to get in trouble. And so, of course, I had to steal it or embezzle or lie. Let's get some of the students involved. God, you don't understand. If I don't get an A on this test, I don't get an A in this class. And if I don't get an A in this class, then I will not get into the right school or get the right scholarship. And if I don't get that, then I don't get the right career. And my whole life is ruined. See, through obedience, we prove that we believe God's desired response to the trial in attitude, in heart, in mind, in an action is far better than anything that we could come up with on our own. And that's where we say God's word is the way. See, we can point an accusing finger at the Israelites, and there's lots of reasons to that you and I are no different. It's easy to say that we trust and believe in God till the difficulties come. The minute Shelley got off that plane here at Houston, she could hardly walk without falling over. I literally had to prop her and hold her, almost carry slash drag her 
to get out to a seat when we got off that plane. It was heart-wrenching. She had this debilitating headache. I've never seen her in so much pain other than maybe childbirth. Got so bad, we had to take her to MD Anderson the next day. She was admitted for many tests. They put her on all kinds of pain meds. Some of the best, world's best neurologists had no idea what kind of tumor it was. And so we watched and we waited for five months, not knowing if this was cancer or what the long-term effects it would have on Shelly's health. They didn't want to do surgery because it wasn't growing. The medical bills grew. The tumor stayed the same. Shelly was in pain. And still we waited for five months. I was tempted to focus on everything that didn't go right. In fact, I had some pretty dark days with grumbling and complaining in my mouth, mind and my mouth. See, when God brought me into the desert, he exposed the true nature of my faith by showing me how often I focus on the circumstances around me. Doesn't that happen so often? When you and I find ourselves in the pit or in the wilderness, we get so caught up in the circumstances, the difficulties surrounding us. This happened with Israel and with Moses in Numbers 20. This test of thirst for them, the test of leadership for Moses, which they both failed. They allowed their circumstances to determine their attitude, which in turn resulted in a complaining and angry mouth and a disobedient heart. They had no faith that the God who had miraculously saved them from Egypt and had provided them all 40 years actually knew best and could still fully meet their needs in the middle of a desert. And so their complaining, their angry mouths, their sinful reaction revealed what was truly in the hearts. And as God began to squeeze them from the inside out or the outside in, guess what happened? Everything that was in the inside came out. Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure in his heart brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks that from which fills his heart. If it's in the inside, it's going to come out, right? They were determined to focus on their circumstances instead of trusting in God's faithfulness and his gracious provision. A couple weeks into this thing, Shell and I just resolved we are done. We're done dealing with the anxiety and the fear our way. And we began to pray according to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace which surpasses what? All understanding. It is so incredible from God. You, you and I don't even understand it. Comprehend it. The peace which surpassed all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds who, in who? In Christ Jesus. We began striving to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not in our own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. And God answered our prayers and yours. Many of you were here during that time and you prayed for us. Thank you. The story is amazing. God used a childhood friend who just so happened to see Shelley's post on Facebook, right? By chance. 
Maybe it was God's sovereign work. And guess what? This childhood friend worked at MD Anderson in the brain ward. Guess who she worked for? A world-renowned neurosurgeon. So she goes to him and says, hey, I have a friend coming from Albania. Would you be willing to see him? I, can't, I don't even know what the weight was at that point to get into MD Anderson. He said, sure. And just like that, before we had left Albania, we already had a doctor and a hospital. After five months of MRIs, no change. The tumor started growing. So on March 14, 2016, the neurosurgeon was able to successfully remove the entire tumor Pathology revealed that it was benign. And so praise the Lord, it wasn't cancer. God cared for us every step of the way. And guess what? He continues to do so. Shelly has chronic pain. Uh, many of you think the pain that she's in is living with me. <laughs> Which there's some truth to that. I'm not going to deny. But many of you would know she has chronic pain. She suffers. She'll have that for the rest of her life till she gets to heaven where she will have no pain. And you know what? God's grace is sufficient. In her weakness, his power is on display. God is in the business of doing amazing things. Amen? All for his glory. I think in part, this is why Moses was judged the way that he was in Numbers 20, verse 12. Again, God does miracles, not Moses. And when Moses rewrote God's script, it stole glory from God in the sight of the sons of Israel. I think that's what God was talking about there. That's why this was so offensive to God. Moses' disobedience didn't treat God as holy, and he didn't just do it before the Lord, he did it in front of all of the sons of Israel. So many lessons we could learn, but here's at least one. Don't let bad, sinful habits rule your responses to trials. Again, the Israelites loved Egypt and they would be satisfied with nothing left. Think about this with me. It might have taken one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. I think this is why God led them through the wilderness before he took them to the promised land. It was to purify them, to make them wholly devoted to him alone because Israel needed to stop delighting in the lesser pleasures of this world and return to delighting in their all-faithful, mighty God, Yahweh. And I think this is why so often we don't respond to trials with joy. It's because we have trained ourselves to let our circumstances steal our joy. And instead of prayerfully anticipating how the Lord is going to help us and show himself big and faithful in the midst of our wilderness, what do we do? We begin to worry. We begin to complain. We begin to doubt whether God even cares at all. These past years have been some of our sweetest times of prayer and communion. In fact, every year now we have to go and get this MRI done. And every year on the drive down, they were saying, Lord, 
If this is the year where things change in Shelley's brain, prepare us, give us faith to receive that news with joy, trusting in you. Shelley calls it crisis faith. When you're in the midst of that wilderness, in every moment, you just have to put your faith and trust in the Lord. Listen to sermons, read the Bible, remind yourself of who God is and how great he is. Trust in him. You see, when God's testing reveals patterns of sin in our life, we must repent. We must begin to work on new biblical habits that honor the Lord. Let God's presence through his word comfort you and give you direction in obedience and your faith will grow in the midst of that trial. So there is a second purpose of testing and it is to expose the true nature of our faith. Will we put faith into action through humble obedience or not? Well, by way of conclusion, this morning we have examined two of testing's purposes. You know, God could save you and me. He could speed us across our journey through the wilderness of life pain-free. He could take us right to the promised land of heaven. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he uses trials to test us, to humble us, and to expose the true nature of our faith so that we might become more and more like Christ. For that is where our true hope is found. Amen? So how will you respond, church, when God places you in the wilderness? Will you humble yourself? Will you depend upon your great God in obedience by faith or not? May the Lord bless you as you seek to humbly honor and obey him through the wilderness trials in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence recognizing that we are like Israel so often, so many ways. And yet, just like them, you are gracious and forgiving and merciful. And you still demonstrate your power in incredible ways. But Lord, we don't want to respond that way. And because of the gospel and because of Christ, we don't have to. We can learn better ways so that the circumstances of the difficulties of life don't steal our joy. Would you use your word by the power of your spirit this morning to reinforce our trust and dependence on you to bring humility to us so that when those wilderness tests come, we would respond in a way that pleases you. And I know that may mean you don't always remove the sorrow and the report may not always be as good as Shelley's was. We get that, Lord. But we know whatever it is, you will be with us and you will provide to your glory. Because of Christ, we ask these things for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.